Hey friends, M. Faring here. I'm so glad you're joining me as we journey through the pages of God's Word, looking for the big picture story, digging deep in study, and discovering how all of this applies to our lives. Most importantly, I hope you are able to see how Jesus is found throughout it all, plus learn more about God's character and love for us along the way. Let's open our Bibles together, one chapter at a time. Okay, friends, let's begin. Welcome back, OOBTers. I'm so glad you're here with me today as we pick up where we left off in the unfolding story of Jacob, Rachel, Leah, and Laban. And what a story it is, right? Wow, just wow. However, before we move into our reading of Genesis chapter 31 today, let's circle back around to discuss Laban and Jacob's agreement about that livestock, plus Jacob's blessing of an increase in both flocks and wealth at the end of Genesis chapter 30. You know, as I promised to do at the end of our last episode together. (laughs) Now, you may recall some seemingly bizarre things happening following Laban and Jacob's agreement. By bizarre, I mean the odd mating technique with the fresh-cut striped poplar branches. Truthfully, I still don't think I really understand exactly what we read about in verses 37 through 43. (laughs) But anyway, my lack of understanding here actually led me to search for some notes in my study Bibles to hopefully shed some light on these verses. Here's a few perspectives I came across that were really helpful to me. First off, my NIV Faith Life Study Bible has this to say about Genesis chapter 30, verses 32 through 36. In this part of the world, sheep are typically white and goats are dark brown or black. Consequently, the markings Jacob describes on the animals he demands for his wages would lead Laban to presume that he was going to get the better side of the agreement, as his response in verse 34 suggests. Jacob is confident that he will do well and ultimately become successful. Jacob attributes this turn of events not to his own actions, but to God, as found in Genesis chapter 31, verses 8 and 9. In the meantime, though, Jacob uses some questionable magical practices of the culture at the time. Some ancient Near Eastern beliefs that the offspring of an animal was affected by what it saw during the mating process. The Faith Life Bible goes on to say that since Jacob attributes his success to God in chapter 31, verses 9 through 11, he believed in these moments he was acting in faith that God would supernaturally increase his flocks. While there is no natural explanation for Jacob's success, and God does take credit for this achievement in verses 12 and 13 of chapter 31, this does not mean that God responded directly to Jacob's techniques here. Instead, God is simply choosing to look out for Jacob as he promised. As he promised. Promise keeper. I so love that about God's character, don't you, my friends? What we are seeing here is God blessing the flocks of Jacob more than Laban because he was faithful to his promises to Jacob. Full stop. At Bethel, he told Jacob that he'd spread out his descendants to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south, and that he would bless him and be with him wherever he went. God also promised to bring Jacob back to the land of Canaan in Genesis chapter 28, verses 14 and 15. The method God chose meant the sound of the bleatings of spotted, speckled sheep and goats would follow Jacob and his family all the way home. And as for those branches, we should see them as just mere accessories to God's plan for Jacob. Wow. Just wow. Okay, friends, just to be sure we're all on the same page, and because I don't know about all of you, but it was helpful for me to realize that once again, the methods, no matter how strange, are not at all the point here. The point is that this account shows that Jacob, the cheater and deceiver, is a recipient of incredibly undeserved blessings. He prospers in the land of Laban, and as it read in Genesis chapter 30, verse 43, as a result, Jacob became very wealthy with large flocks of sheep and goats, female and male servants, and camels and donkeys. 
Jacob recognizes God's gracious hand and concludes, as we will soon read in chapter 31, verse 42, In fact, if the God of my father had not been on my side, the God of Abraham and the fearsome God of Isaac, you would have sent me away empty-handed. But God has seen your abuse and my hard work. Oh my, undeserved blessings. I think we can all understand that now, can't we? God is so good to us, even when we don't deserve it. Especially when we don't deserve it. Thank you, God. Well, how about we now pick up with Genesis chapter 31 from the New Living Translation of the Bible, which reads, But Jacob soon learned that Laban's sons were grumbling about him. Jacob has robbed our father of everything, they said. He has gained all his wealth at our father's expense. And Jacob began to notice a change in Laban's attitude toward him. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your father and grandfather and to your relatives there, and I will be with you. So Jacob called Rachel and Leah out to the field where he was watching his flock. He said to them, I have noticed that your father's attitude toward me has changed, but the God of my father has been with me. You know how hard I have worked for your father, but he has cheated me, changing my wages ten times. But God has not allowed him to do me any harm. For if he said the speckled animals will be your wages, the whole flock began to produce speckled young. And when he changed his mind and said the striped animals will be your wages, then the whole flock produced striped young. In this way, God has taken your father's animals and given them to me. One time, during the mating season, I had a dream and saw that the male goats mating with the females were streaked, speckled, and spotted. Then in my dream, the angel of God said to me, Jacob, and I replied, Yes, here I am. The angel said, Look up, and you will see that only the streaked, speckled, and spotted males are mating with the females of your flock. For I have seen how Laban has treated you. I am the God who appeared to you at Bethel, the place where you anointed the pillar of stone and made your vow to me. Now get ready and leave this country and return to the land of your birth. Rachel and Leah responded, That's fine with us. We won't inherit any of our father's wealth anyway. He has reduced our rights to those of foreign women. And after he sold us, he wasted the money you paid him for us. All the wealth God has given you from our father legally belongs to us and our children. So go ahead and do whatever God has told you. So Jacob put his wives and children on camels, and he drove all his livestock in front of him. He packed all the belongings he had acquired and set out for the land of Canaan where his father Isaac lived. At the time they left, Laban was some distance away, shearing his sheep. Rachel stole her father's household idols and took them with her. Jacob outwitted Laban the Aramean, for they set out secretly and never told Laban they were leaving. So Jacob took all his possessions with him and crossed the Euphrates River, heading for the hill country of Gilead. Three days later, Laban was told that Jacob had fled, so he gathered a group of his relatives and set out in hot pursuit. He caught up with Jacob seven days later in the hill country of Gilead. But the previous night God had appeared to Laban in a dream and told him, I'm warning you, leave Jacob alone. Laban caught up with Jacob as he was camped in the hill country of Gilead, and he set up his camp not far from Jacob's. What do you mean by deceiving me like this? Laban demanded. How dare you drag my daughters away like prisoners of war? Why did you slip away secretly? Why did you deceive me? And why didn't you say you wanted to leave? I would have given you a farewell feast with singing and music accompanied by tambourines and harps. Why didn't you let me kiss my daughters and grandchildren and tell them goodbye? You have acted very foolishly. I could destroy you, but the God of your father appeared to me last night and warned me, leave Jacob alone. I can understand your feeling that you must go and your intense longing for your father's home, but why have you stolen my gods? I rushed away because I was afraid, Jacob answered. I thought you would take your daughters from me by force. But as for your gods, see if you can find them, and let the person who has taken them die. 
And if you find anything else that belongs to you, identify it before all these relatives of ours, and I will give it back. But Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen the household idols. Laban went first into Jacob's tent to search there, then into Leah's, and then into the tents of the two servant wives, but he found nothing. Finally, he went into Rachel's tent. But Rachel had taken the household idols and hidden them in her camel saddle, and now she was sitting on them. When Laban had thoroughly searched her tent without finding them, she said to her father, Please, sir, forgive me if I don't get up for you. I'm having my monthly period. So Laban continued his search, but he could not find the household idols. Then Jacob became very angry, and he challenged Laban. What's my crime? he demanded. What have I done wrong that to make you chase after me as though I were a criminal? You have rummaged through everything I own. Now show me what you have found that belongs to you. Set it out here in front of us, before our relatives, for all of them to see. Let them judge between us. For twenty years I have been with you, caring for your flocks. In that time your sheep and goats never miscarried. In all those years I never used a single ram of yours for food. If any were attacked and killed by wild animals, I never showed you the carcass and asked you to reduce the count of your flock. No, I took the loss myself. You made me pay for every stolen animal, whether it was taken in broad daylight or in the dark of night. I worked for you through scorching heat of the day and through cold and sleepless nights. Yes, for twenty years I slaved in your house. In fact, if the God of my father had not been on my side, the God of Abraham and the fearsome God of Isaac, you would have sent me away empty-handed. But God has seen your abuse and my hard work. That is why he appeared to you last night and rebuked you. Then Laban replied to Jacob, These women are my daughters, these children are my grandchildren, and these flocks are my flocks. In fact, everything you see is mine. But what can I do now about my daughters and their children? So come, let's make a covenant, you and I, and it will be a witness to our commitment. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a monument. Then he told his family members, Gather some stones. So they gathered stones and piled them in a heap. Then Jacob and Laban sat down beside the pile of stones to eat a covenant meal. To commemorate the event, Laban called the place Witness Pile in Aramaic, and Jacob called the place Witness Pile in Hebrew. Then Laban declared this pile of stones will stand as a witness to remind us of the covenant we have made today. This explains why it is called Galid, Witness Pile. But it is also called Mitzpah, which means Watchtower. For Laban said, May the Lord keep watch between us to make sure that we keep this covenant when we are out of each other's sight. If you mistreat my daughters or if you marry other wives, God will see it even if no one else does. He is a witness to this covenant between us. See this pile of stones, Laban continued, and see this monument I have set between us? They stand between us as witnesses of our vows. I will never pass this pile of stones to harm you, and you must never pass these stones or this monument to harm me. I call him the God of our ancestors, the God of your grandfather Abraham, and the God of my grandfather Nahor, to serve as a judge between us. So Jacob took an oath before the fearsome God of his father Isaac to respect the boundary line. Then Jacob offered a sacrifice to God there on the mountain and invited everyone to a covenant feast. After they had eaten, they spent the night on the mountain. Laban got up early the next morning and he kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then he left and returned home. So here we continue in the story of Jacob trying to leave Laban to return to the land of Canaan, the land God instructs him to return to. Verse 5 Genesis study has this to say in reference to Genesis chapter 31, verse 13. In verse 13, we find Jacob still living in Haran with his uncle Laban. Remember, his mother Rebekah had urged him to go there after he stole his brother Esau's birthright and blessing. Much has happened since he arrived. He gained two wives, several concubines, and multiple children. While there, Jacob prospered greatly. Laban prospered as well, not through hard work, but through manipulating Jacob. But God never forgot Jacob. He saw Laban mistreating him, 
and God intervened by appearing to Jacob in a dream and telling him it was time to return home. Notice how God identified himself in today's verse. I am the God of Bethel. Why did he use that particular name? It was because God was reminding Jacob of the last time he had spoken to him in a dream, 20 years earlier. In that dream, God renewed the covenant he made with Jacob's grandfather, Abraham. I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham, and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Genesis 28, 13, and 15. God promised, and he remembered. And now it was time for Jacob to go back to Canaan to fulfill that covenant. Isn't it like our God to meet Jacob here? Elroy, the God who sees. He never abandons his children, especially when we feel overwhelmed, overlooked, undervalued, underappreciated, and without hope. He not only sees us, but he also finds us and intercedes and provides for us. He did it for Hagar and Ishmael, and he does it again here. Oh, friends, that description of God as Elroy, the God who sees, gets me every time I see it. The reminder that he never abandons us, that he not only sees us, but also finds us and rescues us. He provides for us. Such a beautiful reminder, am I right? Moving on, I found the study notes in the NLT Life Application Study Bible helpful in sorting out the craziness of fleeing and idols and so on in chapter 31. The note for verses 14 and 15 reads, Leaving home was not difficult for Rachel and Leah because their father had treated them as poorly as he had Jacob. According to the custom, they were supposed to receive the benefits of the dowry Jacob paid for them, which was 14 years of hard work. When Laban did not give them what was rightfully theirs, they knew they would never inherit anything from their father. Thus, they wholeheartedly approved of Jacob's plan to take the wealth he had gained and leave. And then in verse 19, the study note says, Many people kept small wooden or metal idols, household idols, in their homes. These idols were called teraphim, and they were thought to protect the home and offer advice in times of need. They had legal significance as well, for when they were passed on to an heir, the person who received them could rightfully claim the greatest part of the family inheritance. No wonder Laban was concerned when he realized the idols were missing. Most likely, Rachel stole her father's idols because she was afraid Laban would consult them and learn where she and Jacob had gone, or perhaps she wanted to claim the family inheritance. So here we see hidden idols. More specifically, Rachel hiding her father's idols from him. In truth, idols can be visible or invisible, and how this plays out in our own lives could look a million different ways, but we too must be careful of the hidden idols in our own lives. Most of us don't have household idols in a literal sense, but we often cling to things besides God for security. Our success, our jobs, our families, our financial reserves, our good deeds. All of these can be like household idols. A great challenge of faith is to learn to let go of such things and trust God completely. Actually, this conversation could fill up the content of an episode all of its own. But in the interest of time, I will leave you with these questions to consider for yourself any possible hidden idols you may have in your own life. Do you have any household idols? When you find it hard to trust God, what do you hang on to for security? Continuing on, Genesis chapter 32 reads, As Jacob started on his way again, angels of God came to meet him. When Jacob saw them, he exclaimed, This is God's camp. So he named the place Manam. Then Jacob sent messengers ahead with, to his brother Esau, who was living in the region of Seir in the land of Edom. He told them, Give this message to my master Esau. Humble greetings from your servant Jacob. Until now I've been living with Uncle Laban, and now I own cattle, donkeys, flocks of sheep and goats, and many servants, both men and women. 
I have sent these messengers to inform my Lord of my coming, hoping that you will be friendly to me. After delivering the message, the messengers returned to Jacob and reported, We met your brother Esau, and he is already on his way to meet you with an army of 400 men. Jacob was terrified at the news. He divided his household along with the flocks and herds and camels into two groups. He thought, If Esau meets one group and attacks it, perhaps the other group can escape. Then Jacob prayed, O God of my grandfather Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, you told me, Return to your land and to your relatives, and you promised me, I will treat you kindly. I am not worthy of all the unfailing love and faithfulness you have shown me, your servant. When I left home and crossed the Jordan River, I am nothing except a walking stick. Now my household fills two large camps. O Lord, please rescue me from the hand of my brother Esau. I am afraid he is coming to attack me, along with my wives and children. But you promised me I will surely treat you kindly and will multiply your descendants until they become as numerous as the sands along the seashore. Too many to count. Jacob stayed where he was for the night. Then he selected these gifts from his possessions to present to his brother Esau. Two hundred female goats, twenty male goats, two hundred ewes, twenty rams, thirty female camels with their young, forty cows, ten bulls, twenty female donkeys, and ten male donkeys. He divided these animals into herds and assigned them to different servants. Then he told his servants, Go ahead of me with the animals, but keep some distance between the herds. He gave these instructions to the men leading the first group. When my brother Esau meets you, he will ask, Whose servants are you? Where are you going? Who owns these animals? You must reply, They belong to your servant Jacob, but they are a gift for his master Esau. Look, he is coming right behind us. Jacob gave the same instructions to the second and third herdsmen and to all who followed behind. You must say the same thing to Esau when you meet him, and be sure to say, Look, your servant Jacob is right behind us. Jacob thought, I will try to appease him by sending gifts ahead of me. When I see him in person, perhaps he will be friendly to me. So the gifts were sent on ahead while Jacob himself spent the night in the camp. During the night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two servant wives, and his eleven sons, and crossed the Jabbok River with them. After taking them to the other side, he sent over all his possessions. This left Jacob all alone in the camp, and a man came and wrestled with him until the dawn began to break. When the man saw that he would not win the match, he touched Jacob's hip and wrenched it out of its socket. Then the man said, Let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. What is your name? the man asked. He replied, Jacob. Your name will no longer be Jacob, the man told him. From now on you will be called Israel because you have fought with God and with men and have won. Please tell me your name, Jacob said. Why do you want to know my name, the man replied. Then he blessed Jacob there. Jacob named the place Peniel, which means face of God. For he said, I have seen the face of God, yet my life has been spared. The sun was rising as Jacob left Peniel and was limping because of the injury at his hip. Even today the people of Israel don't eat the tendon near the hip socket because of what happened that night when the man strained the tendon of Jacob's hip. Oh my, where do we even begin, friends? How about I begin reading from the Promised One, seeing Jesus in the book of Genesis, and we'll move on from there. Jacob began making preparations to see Esau and sent ahead messengers to tell Esau he was coming with gifts of livestock and servants. Jacob obviously wanted to do more than say, I'm sorry. He was set to make reparations for what he had stolen from Esau. But then the messengers returned with a report that had to be unnerving. Esau was on his way, and he had 400 men with him, a small army, and Jacob was understandably afraid. But it is here that we see God is blessing Jacob, not only by providing for him and protecting him, but by changing him. Jacob is not running from his failure, but facing up to it. 
He's not grabbing. He's about to give away much of his wealth to his brother. And he's not making plans to get what he wants from God. He is turning to God in prayer. For the first time in the account of Jacob's life, we see Jacob bow the knee in prayer. This was no panic prayer telling God what to do. Jacob held unto God's promise to bless him and prayed in light of that promise, with sincerity and humility. Verse 9 begins, Then Jacob prayed, O God of my grandfather Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, you told me, Return to your own land and to your relatives, and you promised me I will treat you kindly. I am not worthy of all the unfailing love and faithfulness you have shown me, your servant. When I left home and crossed the Jordan River, I owned nothing except a walking stick. Now my household fills two large camps. O Lord, please rescue me from the hand of my brother Esau. I am afraid that he is coming to attack me, along with my wives and children. But you promised me I will surely treat you kindly, and I will multiply your descendants until they become too numerous as the sands of the seashore, too many to count. Jacob's prayer was, God, you have given me so much grace. Give me more. After praying, Jacob gathered his wives and children and the rest of his possessions and sent them across a river in the dark of night. It was a dangerous and desperate move, and it left him alone on the far side of the river, away from his brother Esau. It must have been very quiet there all alone. He must have been exhausted from directing such a massive moving project. But there was no sleep ahead for Jacob. In the pitch-black darkness, he felt a strong hand grip him, and a wrestling match ensued. This was no light-hearted tussle. It was an all-out, sweaty, strenuous, furious fight. Wrestling in the dark. The truth is, Jacob had been wrestling all of his life. He had wrestled the birthright from his brother. He had wrestled the words of affirmation and blessing from his father. Then he wrestled the blessing of having Rachel as his wife from his father-in-law. Now he wrestled someone new. He just didn't know who, at least not at first. Verse 24 says, This left Jacob all alone in the camp, and a man came and wrestled him until the dawn began to break. When the man saw that he would not win the match, he touched Jacob's hip and wrenched it out of its socket. When his foe put his hip out of the joint with just a touch, it began to dawn on Jacob that this was not just a man. Apparently this opponent was strong enough to have won the struggle at any moment, but chose not to. As the dawn began to break, it began to dawn on Jacob just who his adversary was, especially when he said, Let me go, for the dawn is breaking. Jacob knew that no human can see the face of God and live, and that convinced him. Jacob realized that his adversary was no mere man but God himself in human form, perhaps a pre-incarnate Christ. In verse 26, Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. If his opponent stayed and the sun rose so that Jacob could see his face, Jacob would not survive it. Jacob's life was in danger, yet Jacob begged him to stay. Why would he do that? Jacob had come to the place where the blessing of God meant more to him than life itself, but Jacob was no longer willing to grasp and deceive and manipulate to get the blessings of God. He had become convinced that God would make good on those promises to him. Jacob wanted to do whatever it took, even if it cost his life, to know the singular blessing that comes from knowing and being known by God himself. Less concerned about getting all he wanted from God, Jacob wanted God to have all of him. And the way he will enter into that blessing is not only by coming clean with his brother about what he had done, but also by coming clean before God about who he is. Verse 27, he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. This was a call for confession. It must have been painful just to say his own name, and at that moment it dripped with its original meaning and served as a confession of guilt. I'm Jacob, the twister, the deceiver, the cheater. I have no right to any blessing. But now God has gotten to the heart of the matter, and it is Jacob's heart that God has wanted. And God in his grace did not leave Jacob lingering in the pit of shame. But in verse 28 it says, Then he said, 
Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. The name Israel literally means God fights or God strives. God gave Jacob a new name, a new identity that defined him, not by his personal failure, but by God's conquest of his heart. God's defeat of his old ways of deception, God's strength in his weakness. Jacob entered into a struggle with God, reminding God of his promises and begging him for his mercy, and it was Israel who emerged from it, walking with a limp. To have Jacob's heart, God was prepared to dislocate Jacob's hip. This was not a bone temporarily out of joint, but a crippling injury. For the rest of his life, Jacob would walk with a limp, reminding him of this long and difficult night. And yet, as we read, and there he blessed him. Is this what the blessing of God looks like? Walking with a limp? Nancy Guthrie continues, I remember sitting in a Bible study of Genesis a decade ago when the lecturer, Sue Johnson, said, God wrenched his leg, and for the rest of his life, Jacob walked with a limp. After class, I raced to my car full of emotion. Life at that point was day-to-day struggles to manage my daughter's seizures. I knew that her life would soon be over and mine would never be the same. I'm going to walk with a limp for the rest of my life, I said to myself through tears. I had always been strong. I had places to go and things to do. I didn't want a limp. I suppose there was a bit of wrestling match going on between God and me as I sat there in the car. I knew that I could not overpower or manipulate God. And ultimately, I realized I didn't want to get my own way anyway. What I wanted most was to be touched deeply by God in it, to see his face in it, to be changed by him through it. I know I'm going to walk with a limp for the rest of my life, I remember thinking as I put my head down on the steering wheel. But I don't want that limp to remind me only of the struggle and the sorrow. I want it to remind me of a place of surrender, a place where God met me and blessed me through brokenness, a place of breakthrough into a deeper, more genuine relationship with God himself. For God to have our hearts sometimes requires a divine dislocation of whatever it is that makes us so strong, so that Christ's strengths can shine through our weaknesses. Jacob lost his wrestling match with God, but this loss was actually his greatest victory. To be truly blessed by God is not to emerge from the struggles of life unscathed, but to emerge from them having been pressed more deeply into God, to have become more desperate for God, to have become convinced that having your identity flow from His victory in your life is worth more than walking away from the struggle with your health and position and lifestyle perfectly intact. Have you ever been desperate enough for God, desperate enough for Him to touch your life in a deep and permanent way that you've been willing to risk everything to have Him? Now listen to this from She Reads Truth's Bible in a section called Grasping God's Grace. Not many people can say they burst into the scene like Jacob did. He made his entrance into the world holding onto the heel of his twin brother. So naturally, that's what his parents named him. He grasped the heel. Aren't you glad you weren't named after some quirk in your birth story? Oh my. Jacob's grasping didn't end at birth, though. His story reads like a laundry list of things he did to get what he wanted. He was determined and driven, willing to deceive and manipulate situations to get his way. Jacob manipulated his brother Esau into handing over his birthright and then tricked his father Isaac into giving him Esau's rightful blessing. He worked 14 years to make beautiful Rachel his wife and then went outside God's design for marriage to get more sons. He entered a battle of wits with his uncle Laban and left with a lion's share of Laban's livestock. And in an over-the-top display of generosity, he tried to win his brother's forgiveness. Jacob was a heel grasper, all right. He was a man whose power grabs seemed to live by the age-old adage, the ends justify the means. But this story isn't about the smooth-talking man. It's another instance of the ribbon of grace weaving its way through humanity, not only through Jacob's story, but through yours and mine. See, we're heel graspers too. 
How often have we deceived ourselves or others to get what we wanted? How many ways have we manipulated situations, relying on our own cunning to succeed in life, rather than depending on God for all we need? The good news for us is that God's promise to Jacob, the promise that the Lord would watch over him and bless him, didn't depend on Jacob's report card. Again and again, God reiterated his promise to bless the wayward go-getter, not because Jacob deserved it, but simply because it pleased God to do it. It brings God immeasurable glory when he dumps buckets of blessings onto his unworthy children. Like a beautiful bookend to Jacob's story, God went on to change Jacob's name from he grasps the heel to Israel, meaning he struggles with God. Jacob, the conniver and striver, became the father of a nation that birthed the deliverer. That's what God does for us, too. He doesn't leave us alone in our sin, but instead comes down to wrestle with us. He seeks us out face to face so that by his touch we might be blessed. Oh, friends, as we are at the end of chapter 32, moving into the beginning of chapter 33, let's visualize this scene together. The sun is rising on a limping Jacob as he emerges from an all-night wrestling match with God. He steps in front of his family members and goes to meet with his brother Esau. Can you imagine it? Oh, my heart, sometimes the tenderness of one scene in these stories can get lost. But we must take time to consider what those moments were like. This time, what it was like for Jacob in those moments. So, so good. With that thought in mind, let's begin our reading of Genesis chapter 33. Then Jacob looked up and saw Esau coming with his 400 men. So he divided his children among Leah, Rachel, and his two servant wives. He put the servant wives and their children at the front, Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph last. Then Jacob went on ahead. As he approached his brother, he bowed down to the ground seven times before him. Then Esau ran to meet him and embraced him, threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they both wept. Then Esau looked at the women and the children and said, Who are these people with you? These are the children God has graciously given to me, your servant, Jacob replied. Then the servant wives came forward with their children and bowed before him. Next came Leah with her children, and they bowed before him. Finally, Joseph and Rachel came forward and bowed before him. And what were all the flocks and herds I met as I came, Esau asked. Jacob replied, They are a gift, my lord, to ensure your friendship. My brother, I have plenty, Esau answered. Keep what you have for yourself. But Jacob insisted, No, if I have found favor with you, please accept this gift from me. And what a relief it is to see your friendly smile. It is like seeing the face of God. Please take this gift I have brought you, for God has been very gracious to me. I have more than enough. And because Jacob insisted, Esau finally accepted the gift. Well, Esau said, let's be going. I'll lead the way. But Jacob replied, you can see, my lord, that some of the children are very young, and the flocks and herds have their young too. If they are driven too hard, even for one day, all the animals could die. Please, my lord, go ahead of your servant. We will follow slowly, at a pace that is comfortable for the livestock and the children. I will meet you at Seir. All right, Esau said, but at least let me assign some of my men to guide and protect you. Jacob responded, That's not necessary. It's enough that you've received me warmly, my lord. So Esau turned around and started back to Seir that same day. Jacob, on the other hand, traveled to Succoth. There he built himself a house and made shelters for his livestock. That is why the place was named Succoth, which means shelters. Later, having traveled all the way from Padam Aram, Jacob arrived safely at the town of Shechem in the land of Canaan. There he set up camp outside the town. Jacob bought the plot of land where he camped with the family of Hamor the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of silver. And there he built an altar and named it Eli Elo, Israel. So in picking up where we left off in reading this chapter, First Five Genesis study devotional titled Wrestling Turns Into Embracing has similar thoughts about this encounter. It begins, 
In Genesis 33, Jacob is about to meet his brother Esau, a brother whose blessing he had deceitfully taken twenty years earlier, a brother who had vowed to kill him. The night before their encounter, Jacob moved his entire family and all their possessions to safety, and he stayed behind. That's when, suddenly, out of the darkness, a man began to wrestle with Jacob until daybreak. Jacob had no idea who he was wrestling with, but he would not quit. After hours of struggle, the man deliberately popped Jacob's hip out of joint. Still, Jacob refused to let go until the man blessed him. Then the man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. What a night. Jacob's strength is gone. His body is racked with pain and fatigue. He has permanently dislocated his hip, and he knows God has just spared his life. Then he lifts up his eyes and sees Esau coming toward him with 400 men. Imagine the mounting tension. It is a moment of truth. What will happen next? Will Esau take advantage of Jacob's weakened state and kill him? Will Jacob try to flee again? Jacob rises to the occasion and risks everything. He leads his family out to meet his brother, humbly bowing down and painfully limping all the way. Jacob's strength was in his limp. It was a constant reminder that God was in charge and God had blessed him, regardless of what happened next. As Jacob limped forward in faith, Esau ran to meet him and embraced him. Obviously, God had been working to change Esau's mind and attitude toward his brother as well. At that moment, 20 years of anger and a lifetime of wrestling between brothers miraculously ceased. They stood there weeping. Their conversation exhibited consideration for each other, and their reunion was favorable and pleasant. Like Jacob, our strength comes when we are submissive and dependent on God, leaving the results to Him. In quiet trust, we find strength. Only God could have graciously reconciled these brothers. Jacob knew God was responsible for the brotherly love on Esau's face. He even said seeing his brother's face was like seeing God's face. What a change. No more hatred. No more anger. No more wrestling between these two brothers. To further develop these thoughts, the Jesus Bible has this to say about what we see happening here. The Enemies Made Friends devotional reads, Genesis 33 recounts the unthinkable reconciliation between Jacob and Esau. These estranged brothers had seemingly insurmountable odds stacked against the restoration of their relationship. Their history has been marked by strife, deceit, and mutual harm. The relationship between these two men was ravished by sin, and they became bitter enemies. But Esau, in an act of love and mercy, pursued his brother and received him back into fellowship with lavish generosity. Like Jacob, all of humanity is guilty of rebellion and sin against God, thus altering their relationship with their Creator. Image bearers, created to walk with God in fellowship, find themselves estranged from God and unable to right the relationship by their own choosing. This broken fellowship takes those who were created to be friends of God and makes them his enemies. All people, like Jacob, should rightfully cower in fear and shame because of the judgment they surely deserve. God's mercy is seen in the restorative act that he works on behalf of his enemies. Rather than expecting them to grovel in his presence or clean themselves up through obedience, God pursues his enemies in love. The biblical notion of reconciliation captures this profound image. God takes those who are his enemy and works on their behalf to bring them back into a right relationship with himself. Like Esau, God pursues his enemies, recognizes their need, and blesses them with a restored relationship as an act of mercy. Jesus elaborates on this work of reconciliation in his parable of a loving father and his wayward son. The son requested his inheritance early, only to squander everything and end up longing to eat from the trough of the pigs he fed. Only then did the young man realize his sin. The son expected to meet his father's displeasure and anticipated taking the posture of a hired servant. As soon as the son returned, his dad saw him while he was a long way off and ran to meet him. Rather than shame or condemnation, the son was greeted by his father's loving embrace, 
the father gave him a hero's welcome, killing the fattened calf in order to throw a party and celebrate the return of his son. Like Esau and the loving father, God is pictured as a merciful heavenly father who pursues his enemies in love and invites them into a restored relationship made possible through Jesus' death. Wow, I don't know about you, but I just love that comparison made to Jacob and Esau's encounter to the parable of the prodigal son Jesus told is written in Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. Friends, the wayward son was each one of us at some point in our lives. Listen again to that last part of the Jesus Bible devotional. It reads, Like Esau and the loving father, God is pictured as a merciful heavenly father who pursues his enemies in love and invites him into a restored relationship made possible through the death of Jesus. Amazing grace. Just amazing. Okay, friends, you've probably heard me say it enough by now to know how much worship music moves me, moves my heart, and truthfully, often becomes the prayers of my heart and mind that I repeat throughout the day. With that said, let's close today's OOBT episode with a worship song that I continually keep coming across and am so moved by the lyrics of, Same God, a song by Brandon Lake and Elevation Worship. Join me now as we pray these lyrics back to him in prayer. Oh, Father God, I'm calling on the God of Jacob, whose love endures through generations. I know that you will keep your covenant. I'm calling on the God of Moses, the one who opened up the ocean. I need you now to do the same thing for me. Oh God, my God, I need you. Oh God, my God, I need you now. How I need you now. Oh Rock of Ages, I'm standing on your faithfulness. On your faithfulness. I'm calling on the God of Mary, whose favor rests upon the lowly. Yes, it does. I know with you all things are possible. I'm calling on the God of David. Yes, I am. Who made a shepherd boy courageous. I may not face Goliath, but I've got my own giants. How I need you, Lord, never changing. You heard your children then, you hear your children now. You are the same God. You answered prayers back then, you will answer now. You are the same God. You were providing then, you are providing now. You are the same God. Yes, you are the same. You moved in power then. God, move in power now. God, you are the same. You were a healer then, you are a healer now. You are the same God. You were a savior then, you are a savior now. You are the same God. As you were back then, you'll be right now. You're the same God. Faithful back then, faithful you'll be now. You freed the captives then, you're freeing hearts right now. You are the same God. You touched the lepers then, I feel your touch right now. You are the same God. As you've always been, you will always be. You never change. You never change. As you were back then, I know you'll always be faithful. Faithful. I never leave just as I came. I'll always leave better with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. And yes, that link is in the show notes for what I hope will become continued times of prayer and worship for each of you as you listen on repeat in the days to come. These lyrics and prayers and the song links I share with you, they just remind me once again of heaven and the reality that someday songs will flow out of our mouths in worship as we are in the presence of our Creator God. Such a beautiful thought. But until that day comes, I am so honored and humbled to worship our God alongside each of you this side of heaven, my friends. The same God, the same God who answers prayers, provides, saves, all the things, then and now. Thank you, Father God. Okay, friends, I just have to say it. You are all simply the best about sharing this podcast. 
Thank you so very much for helping others find us to then study along with us. Here's a pro tip recommendation when inviting your friends to join in. Have them start at the beginning. I mean in the book of Genesis episodes, as opposed to just jumping into where we are right now, that is. That's the whole point of doing this chronologically, my friends, so that we can follow the whole storyline of the Bible to not only see the character of God, plus Jesus is found throughout it all, but also the big picture story happening across these 66 books grouped together under one cover. The plot is important. And while you're directing them back to Genesis, be sure to encourage them to go ahead and listen to the two prep episodes, episodes one and two, covering why I ventured into hosting a Bible study podcast in the first place and how I study the Bible. Super helpful, I promise. This is M. Faring, and I can't wait until we open our Bibles together next time, my friends.